From the Financial Times in London, I'm Fiona Simon and this is FT News. Mario Centeno, Portugal's finance minister, steps into a major economic policy-making role in the euro area this week, taking over from Jerome Dijsselbloem as president of the Eurogroup. In this report from Brussels, Marion Kahn talks to Jim Brunston about Mr Dijsselbloem's achievements and the tasks facing his successor. Hello, I'm Mehreen Khan and joining me today is Jim Brunston. We're here to talk about the Eurogroup presidency. Jerome Dijsselbloem, who has led the Eurogroup, which is a key policy-making institution for the Euro, is leaving after five years in the job. He's handing over to his successor, Mario Centeno, of Portugal. Uh, it marks something of an end of an era for Eurozone policy-making, which has been dominated by crisis fighting for about three or four years, and now we're enjoying something of a recovery. So what does the new... Eurogroup president have to deal with, Jim? Yeah, well, it's, it's something of, a, of an end of an era. It's quite literally a passing of the baton, or a, to put it more accurately, a passing of the Eurogroup bell, because the president of the Eurogroup has a bell. And basically the things in Mr Centeno's entree, or one of the very dominant themes, is going to be how to actually reform the euro area and make it more resistant to future crises. So we're moving on from this era of crisis fighting, which was very much the era of Mr Dijsselbloem, who uh, came in as Eurogroup president in uh, 2013, to one where we're now looking at what people in Brussels like to term fixing the roof while the sun is shining, what other Eurocrats would call fixing the architecture of the euro area, which is how do we somehow reinforce it, come up with new instruments at European level, maybe more reforms at national level to make the currency area work better. And how important is the job of the president himself? Does Mr Centeno have particular ideas about where he wants the eurozone to go or is it going to be a Franco-German discussion primarily which is then put to the rest of the EU? Yeah, it's a very unique job in the sense that it's an EU post, so you're president of the Eurogroup of Euro Area Finance Ministers, but it's always, or up to now, has been held by a sitting finance minister. So it's an additional hat you wear on top of your national job. So for Jeroen Dijsselbloem, when he was appointed, he had been Dutch finance minister for only a matter of weeks and then emerged very surprisingly, actually, at the time, very quickly as frontrunner to take over from Jean-Claude Juncker for a variety of political reasons, including, you know, especially the need to find a candidate who'd be acceptable to both France and Germany. It's a high visibility post and a very important one. Jeroen Dijsselbloem is credited with playing a key role during the euro area crisis. I interviewed him about his thoughts on his five years doing the job and we went back through the nitty-gritty of some of these all-night negotiations on bailouts for Greece, on establishing a banking union, which was a euro-area project to restore faith in the financial system. And you can see the importance of the role in reconciling different national positions and forging consensus, because this is an area where lots of the power to act and lots of the money is at national level. And so you need these agreements between the governments on national bailouts or establishing new institutions to make the euro area more robust. As for his successor, Mario Centeno, we haven't heard a lot from him yet on specifically what his vision is. He's been very discreet so far since he was nominated in December. Hopefully we'll see some more in the coming weeks. But there's a clear sense that he sees himself as a consensus builder and that one of the main jobs is going to be to somehow reconcile these different Franco-German visions of how the euro area needs to progress and reform, which is actually based on a split that goes back to the foundation of the euro on the very vision of how the currency area should work, a split that's been there since the start between Paris and Berlin. Greece has dominated almost in the majority of Mr. Dijsselbloem's time in office. What is next for Greece and how much did he give you in your interview with him about where progress goes on the bailout this year? So 
in a way, Greece is the real constant of Eurodiscipline's five years as Eurogroup president. And it was something we spent a lot of time on in the interview. And he saw um, the best of times and the worst of times, if you like, on the Greek crisis, if there can be such a thing as the best of times in a crisis. In the sense that when he became Eurogroup president, some very difficult decisions had already been taken. Specifically, the second Greek bailout had been decided, the largest sovereign default in history, the exercise of imposing haircuts or agreeing haircuts with Greece's private creditors had been done. And Greece was starting to work through that programme with the expectation that it would come out the other side with the ability to access market financing and move on to a better economic place. Then what happened at the end of 2014, beginning of 2015, was there was a political crisis in Greece and elections that saw the left-wing Syriza party come to power, party that had a track record of being very opposed to the terms of previous bailouts of Greece. And Eurodiscipline was confronted with that. One of his first acts, in fact, was to go to Greece and meet its then newly appointed finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis. And the interview was able to clear up one mystery, which was at the end of a press conference the two of them did together in Athens. Mr Varoufakis went on something of a monologue criticising the so-called troika of institutions that supervised Greece's bailout. At the end of it, Eurodiscipline whispered something in his ear. Well, we now have clarity of what that was, and it was basically telling him if you are going to reject the troika, that means rejecting European-level support, and that means Greece is rejecting the euro. So that was fascinating to delve into that. And we also spoke about where Greece goes from here. And I think one of the things he's most proud of about his tenure is that Greece does now appear to be on the mend. And one of the astonishing things has been the turnaround in rhetoric in Brussels, where the Syriza government is now credited with doing the bulk, really, of the reform effort that was needed in Greece. The country went to the market last year. And so if all goes to plan, it will exit its third bailout programme later this year without another bailout following it so it will return properly to market financing and Mr Euron Dyspun's message was very much you know that Greece needs to stay the course on reform you know one of the real leitmotifs of his tenure has been the importance of countries sticking to reform commitments but that in his mind the era of austerity for Greece is now over and we've moved on to a discussion that's not about belt tightening but about reform reform needed to make Greece competitive for the medium and long term of course there's many Greeks I think who would take issue with the idea that the age of austerity is now over. So how close did Greece actually come to exiting the Eurozone? And what were Mr Dyselbloom's recollections of those long nights in Brussels? Yeah, that was um, one of the most interesting parts of the interview and something we went into in, into a lot of detail about. Basically, those first six months of 2015 were a torrid time for Greece, a torrid time for the Eurozone, and was really the moment where, I think, from talking to him, it becomes clear that it was really the moment where Grexit was put on the table even if Mr Dysbloom himself never wanted to or never countenanced the idea that it would happen. The way he describes it is a situation where the frustrations of dealing with the Syriza government, particularly with Mr Varoufakis, grew during the early months of 2015 because the second bailout programme of Greece hadn't been completed. Syriza wanted to renegotiate terms. And basically, it was impossible to find a meeting of minds. And he talked about one moment when that came to a head, which was in the April of 2015 in Riga, when finance ministers met for an informal meeting. And essentially, Yanis Varoufakis was taken to task by some of the other countries around the table who basically felt that the support Greece was getting was being taken for granted. And they were being painted by Syriza in a light they couldn't accept, that basically they were people who were taking advantage of Greece rather than helping. 
And one of the points he really wanted to underline was that often when stories are written about this period in general and about the Eurozone crisis more broadly, it's Germany who is put front and centre as the country that ultimately came the closest to advocating Brexit, the country that most lost patience, the country that was the most intransigent in its dealings with Greece. And actually he was pointing out that it was more the countries of Central Europe and Southeastern Europe, many of whom have lower per capita wealth than Greece, who basically most completely lost patience and were the most vocal, the most, um, he described it as most aggressive in Riga. And that then fed into the discussions that happened in the summer, by which point things had degraded even more. Greece had rejected a bailout offer made by the Eurozone. The government had decided to hold a referendum on it and campaign for a no vote to push the point further. Effectively, there was capital flight going on in Greece and the country was approaching an unsustainable place. At that point, the German finance ministry did put a so-called non-paper on the table saying that a temporary Greek exit from the Eurozone should be considered. And uh, again, um, Mr. Dysselbloom in our interview was saying, well, there were other countries who lined up behind that who basically said, we don't have confidence. And that was something he really underlined was essentially the Eurogroup can only function if there is a modicum of trust and confidence between countries. And that's what was missing. In the event, he says he never allowed himself to consider that possibility. And then when matters progressed and discussions moved up to the level of EU leaders, the idea of a Brexit was then never seriously considered. And also during that period, Greece itself had executed a major policy change. Yanis Varoufakis had departed in the wake of the referendum, despite the victory for the No campaign, and Alexis Tsipras, the Prime Minister, had decided that it was time to do a deal with the rest of the Eurozone, and that then set the scene for where we are now two years later. Well, Mr Centeno will be hoping and praying that he doesn't have to deal with the crisis of any kind of the magnitude of Greece. Jim, thanks a lot for joining me. Pleasure. That was a report from Marion Khan and Jim Brunston in the FT Brussels Bureau. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.